Welcome to Adventures in Marketing. I'm Caleb Wines. And I'm Chris Kent. We're two industry veterans who will be having conversations all around marketing and media, what we've seen in our careers, what we see happening currently, and how we think it's going to affect the future of the industry. Is fragmentation good, bad, or indifferent? One thing is for sure, it's not new. As technology has created more avenues for choice, the consumer's media diet has become more diverse. Fragmentation gets a bad rap. Its name implies that something's broken. But is it really? Is fragmentation actually good? The fact that consumers have more choice and are using it is actually a good thing for marketers. So, Chris, media fragmentation has altered the way brands develop go-to-market campaigns. The death of appointment media is a challenge for marketers. But does fragmentation get a bad rap? For me, it goes back to when we really talk about media fragmentation and why I think it's connotated badly. It kind of starts back with when I first started in the business. And you had like Thursday night on NBC and all the Thursday night shows like Friends and Frasier and so forth. And you'd go, you know, you'd watch the shows, you'd come in the next day, and everybody would talk about it while we were getting our morning coffee, right? Everyone know what that popular TV show was, what aired, what happened, what was the big cliffhanger, what was the funny part, and everybody would talk about it, right? You only had five major channels on television. Sure, you had cable, but that was before cable really took off. So you always knew what everyone was watching, what everyone was talking about. Nowadays, it's no longer did you see X last night, it's really talking about do you have such a platform and can you access that content? Yeah. And I think if you go back to the ratings decline that you hear every upfront, I mean, at this point, network ratings are about where cable used to be. So there really are no tentpole media programs anymore where people wait for a specific show to come on, they watch it and then they go talk about it the next day with their friends. I mean, I think, Game of Thrones was was that. I think they would release those weekly, and then you would have a lot of uh, social discussion and water cooler talk on that show. But again, just from a very small segment that was watching it, like all my friends watched that show, and so we ended up talking about it. I'm sure people talk about The Bachelor and other specific shows, but it doesn't have the same kind of gravitas that some of the bigger network shows like Seinfeld or Cheers or whatever had 10 or 20 years ago. I agree. We, like I said, there are those water cooler moments, you know, where you'd come in, everybody would talk about what happened last night. It still happens to your point, whether it is a Game of Thrones, whether it's on Netflix, whether it's on Hulu or Prime, these shows still happen, but a couple of different things have changed. One is not everybody subscribes to every channel, right? Cause that's money. And so we have to pay money to get all these different access Two is now you also get, or for the most part, you get all the episodes to binge. So you're no longer waiting on a weekly basis to see what happens. You almost have to ask people, hey, have you, how many episodes have you watched? How far along are you, you know, before you, you get going to it? But this goes back to media fragmentation. And then I think what we haven't talked about yet is the whole introduction of digital in the terms of we've talked about the platforms for television. But then we also have all the platforms for all of our social. 
Right. And I think you brought up this point a while ago when we were talking about screen time is up and attention is split amongst a lot of different sources. But the reality is people aren't watching less TV. They're just watching different content on different screens. In fact, they're watching more of it. So I think when I hear about media fragmentation, the only people it's bad for is the media buyers and advertising agencies because they don't have those tentpole places. They don't have the one-stop shopping where they could buy three or four shows and be done with it. So now they have to work harder. This we'll talk about later, but it really impacts scope of work because if you really want to get the same kind of reach that you were able to amass by buying five things before, now you have to buy a hundred things and that takes more people. And measuring is tougher because not all those sources that people are watching are measured the same way. I mean, right now, Nielsen is going through kind of a comeuppance because they've had a monopoly on the space. And now there's other players coming in trying to figure out a new currency for viewership. Very true. In fact, let's touch on a couple of the stats. And this is from uh, Exploding Topics. They is where I got these um, stats from. So one is talking about daily screen time has increased by nearly 50 minutes per day since 2013. Right now, the average American spends seven hours and four minutes looking at a screen. That can be your phone, your television, your computer, your iPad, but just generally a screen. We spend seven hours and four minutes. Gen Z, we'll have a whole nother conversation around when we get into the labeling of different groups, but they spend nine hours a day, you know, on screens. But the problem is a lot of that is on social, flipping through TikTok and such. And another big portion of that is gaming. And trying to figure out how to advertise through gaming is still a nascent and growing marketing efforts. So they're still trying to figure it out. But to your point, screen time's up. Yeah, and I think that a lot of the screen time that is up is going to, and you just pointed this out with gaming, a lot of the screen time is going up to places that don't have ads. Like Game of Thrones didn't have ads. So people move from one ad-supported medium to a non-ad-supported medium. That lowers the ability for advertisers to reach those people. And so you have to figure out new and different ways. And sometimes maybe it's not a video ad. Maybe you have to do some sort of display or pick a different media type that isn't video. And I think that those are the things that are challenges for advertising agencies and marketers in general. It's like, what do you do when you have all this fragmentation, which again, good for consumers because they have more choice, more things to consume, but now you end up with a challenge from a marketing standpoint. How do you reach them? So let me ask you the question, what do you think suffers more reach or frequency? I think it's definitely reach because when you have like, here's an example. Network television, ratings are down. So one spot reaches fewer people. So what marketers do is they buy more spots in the same show. They end up getting the same number of impressions, TRPs, if you will. But at Mm -hmm. at the expense of reach, they're just getting, we're hitting the same people multiple times. You and I have both watched videos online, YouTube or whatever, and you'll see the same advertisers cycling through. This is an acute problem on streaming. You could watch Hulu and see the same ad 20 times in an evening, which is terrible because again, they're doing a good job. I think it's actually better from an advertising standpoint because I can get more targeted. When I'm running on broadcast, I get whoever's watching and I really don't know who it is. I, I sort of do from Nielsen, but when I'm buying an ad on Hulu, 
I know exactly who I'm getting or a lot closer to who I'm getting, but the problem is I'm getting that person over and over again. Yeah. I mean, just by the definition, right? Broadcast, you're broadly casting out a message, right? You're just broadly throwing out a net and getting whoever happens to swim into your net when you throw it out there. Because that's why I asked the question about reach versus frequency, because to your point, I can reach people better. I have better targeting. I have better means of getting my message in front of the right person. As we used to always say, right message, right time, right person, right? I now can pretty much bring that in. It's getting, but your efficiency discussion, we kind of started about last time changes, right? Because now you're actually paying more because you're actually getting people at all three of those kind of bullet points coming together. So you're actually getting them hopefully at the best time to hear your message to actually drive through the funnel. Right. I mean, I think that was Hulu's premise that you were no longer buying a time slot. You weren't buying eight to 11. You were buying a demographic. And if they chose to view that content at three in the morning, who cares? It's like, just because you're not running between those prime time hours of eight and 11, you're still getting that quality audience that you sought to reach during that time period anyway. So I think they changed, in my mind, they changed the paradigm from buying time slots to buying audience. I agree. And I think Jimmy Fallon really got that well because Fallon was one of the very first to really take on cutting up his content and putting it through YouTube, right? Again, I might not have stayed up to watch the show, but if everybody talked about something, I looked it up and I watched it at a different time, but you're still getting, you know, you can still hone in on who that audience was. And to be fair, I mean, the broadcast, currencies based on whatever it is, C plus seven. So you're basically counting views that happen outside of the live broadcast. So the live broadcast is not the be all end all anymore. Anyway, that's kind of long past, but the fact that back in the day when Hulu was just up and coming, they were one of the first uh, kind of market audience buying as a currency in a very traditional, they, they were selling the same content as the broadcast networks, but they were selling it in a different way. And consumers digested it because they said, yeah, I can now watch the show on at my leisure and I don't have to make an appointment to sit on my couch and watch a particular show. It's almost passion buying. My audience has a passion for, you know, A, B, C, and I can get that through digital. I can get that through social. I can get that through TV, all the different ways to reach them because I know my audience you know, when you really get into consumer insights and get to know who your audience is, you know what separates them, what draws them in. So it's, I don't know, it's, I guess as, as much as things change, they kind of stay the same, just with different clothes. You know, that's actually a good segue into what's going on right now with this concept of re-aggregation. So if you think about it, you had you had cable starting to break apart where everybody was doing their own streaming platform, individual channels were selling stuff. And now it's all being brought back under because consumers ultimately want to have all this content in one place. Not everybody, but I think a, a lot of folks are trying to look for other content that they could pull within their umbrella, whether it's Disney or Netflix or, or HBO Max, that they're all trying to pull a different value propositions for their consumers to keep them as subscribers. And you know, I'll go back through and I don't know if things have changed. So I'll just say, you know, a few years ago, I used to, I'd, I'd want to talk to my CBS rep and I'd say, Hey, I want to be by CBS sports. I want to buy CBS prime. 
and I want to buy X and I want to buy Z, right? I'd look at that in total umbrella and I'd want to package it all together and they just couldn't do it back then. I think things are getting better though today. So that way you can put together a package, a mixture, if you will, of a bunch of different things to find those audiences. Yeah. I mean, I remember years ago I was talking with our discovery rep and they had like 16 different channels on cable. It was crazy. And I said, you know, you should package all these up and sell them as one thing. So even though the ratings of discovery science are super low, if you stitch that together with your other 10 or 12 networks, you can actually get a decent audience out of it. And they never did it. Uh, I think once they tried experimenting with it, but it was it was too much because of the way the spots get integrated into the shows yeah. and how they were able to transact just with the normal insertion orders. It was it was too much for them. I think ironically now things like programmatic and other digital buying make it a lot easier. Yeah, and I would say someone else who's re-aggregating, look at like with Max, right? Warner Brothers Discovery. You go to the Max channel and your platform, I should say, and you have all the movies, you have Discovery, CNN, and they just did the the um, deal with Bleacher Report and how to bring in live sports for the next like four months, I think, free to try to get you you know hooked on it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the sports one is interesting. I mean, we both listened to the to the town podcast and they were talking about. They had somebody on who was talking about how sports, they made the mistake of trying to give it away for free. And they realized through their European activations that that wasn't viable. They had to sell it to consumers to make it profitable because the individual sports require so much money for the rights. And I think that makes sense. I think there's some things that are going to be free to entice people to subscribe to an overall package. But I think some things are going to be these add-on things. I think the one thing, when I cut my cord like 10 years ago, I got so fed up with Verizon. I think it was on Fios or whatever they were calling it at the time. Because they just kept adding things to the price and charging me. And it was they were adding stuff I didn't want. And I had no ability to go in and try and cut things out. I mean, back then, they were. <laughs> I'm sure they're still doing it selling me a landline phone that I absolutely had no use for. And so finally it got to a price point that it was too much. And I decided to go find a similar list of, of networks that I did want to watch, but at a lower price point. I ended up finding, I think I ended up with the PlayStation streaming service, which is not around anymore, but it, it offered the closest thing to what I was getting from Verizon but it didn't have all the junk that I didn't want. And so I ended up saving like 50 to 70 bucks a month. And part of that was shedding the, the stupid landline that I had no use for. It's funny when I was calling Verizon, it, there was no package I could get that didn't have the landline that was cheaper. Like it was always cheaper to add the landline, which I never even used. I never, I took out all the wires. I had, I was paying for, I was technically paying for something that had like no functionality. Right. Had absolutely no value to. But then it goes back to the whole sports thing. Like there's a lot of sports packages out there that I won't buy because they're bundling a bunch of stuff that I don't ever want to watch. And I would. I wish there was a. I think the Nirvana for consumers is a hundred percent a la carte, so you could just go buy one show, 
if like I don't want to buy the Pac-12 network, which is going to be defunct in a year anyway, because I only want to watch the USC games. I don't want to watch Washington State play Arizona State. Don't care. And if I could just watch, I would pay money on a single use basis for to watch a USC game, but I don't want to pay nine ninety nine a month to get a whole season of stuff I'm never going to watch. Yeah, no, I look, I get it. We we only cut the cord um, probably now four years ago, and mo- basically the same type of thing. We had Charter, which is Spectrum. Same kind of thing, though. They forced you to buy a landline, never owned a phone in this house, never even touched it. And the problem was in our area, you could that was really our only choice or dish, right? We didn't have the option to have just a internet provider to the home. So you had, if you wanted internet, you had to get charter. So if I wanted the internet, then the best package was to get the cable bundle, which I didn't want because it's a bunch of stuff I didn't watch. As soon as they broke it apart, which was again now a few years ago, cut it all and our bill actually dropped by you know over a hundred dollars um because we just got rid of a bunch of stuff we didn't watch now to your point yes we've added on netflix and we've added on hulu and max so we're still ahead of the game but not as much as we were but again the same types of things like it just i just want what i want but i don't know if you could ever get it to where i only want six channels because i think the cost would just be the cost of creating a show could you could that channel exist in only X number of households if I only want six, right? If I only wanted NBC, ABC. But you only watch six anyway. It's true. No, no, no. I get that. But there's efficiencies, I would assume, by the broadcast networks of networking together and selling them as a bundle, that they're getting efficiencies to either create shows, buy shows, right? If you have Bunna Murray making you shows like they did. But Murray made friends, sold it then to NBC, right? You had a different produ- production company from your distribution point. To your point, I watch like five channels. That was the cable model. They're going to charge you $150 to $200 a month. You're going to get every possible show. From that list, you're going to watch six of those. Yeah. Right? And I think that goes back to the whole fragmentation topic is everybody's six is slightly different. Mm-hmm. Right? And so... Whether you're subscribing to cable or you've or you've decided to cut the cord and, and buy everything all a cart, you're still only watching six pieces of content. And I'm using that number because I think Nielsen did a report years ago that talked about the fact that everybody watches, I think it's it was like six to eight different sources. And those sources were different depending on who you were. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, as much as I do support media fragmentation, because to your point, as a consumer, it allows you to really hone in on what it is that you want, your passion point, be able to dig in deeper into what it is that you want. It also does make it more difficult because some of the, I mean, now, now we're finally getting to Netflix. Now we're finally getting to some of these platforms having advertising, right? So now you can start tapping into where people were diverting to and not being able to reach them. I don't know. I think it's really interesting. And I think to your point, this is where going back to our first episode of where are people? What's the art? How do I get to them? How do I make something that's even more breakthrough creatively wherever they are that they remember that that's who I was and those ads do stitch together to drive frequency? Yeah, I think 10 years ago, the conventional wisdom was do one job before moving on to the next. Don't add a second media type unless you've spent your media 
because as the metaphor goes, don't spread too little butter over too much toast, meaning the, you know, if you have a limited budget, better to concentrate it in one thing, but not anymore. I think fragmentation is now you got to buy everything or you're going to miss out on your demo. Correct. Because you, you also have to cue an audience. And so to your point, the only way I'm going to cue the audience, I got to spread it out, but spread it out thick enough that I'm actually breaking through. And I'm creating resonance with that audience. Yeah. So I think now the the media play is not about reach anymore. It's about frequency. It's about managing frequency. You need enough frequency in order to break through. And you need enough impressions across a wide spectrum of different types of content in order to reach your audience because everybody's media diet is so diverse. We talked about creative as part of art and science. And I think having a creative person come in and also talk about fragmentation of media and how that affects the way they design, think of, create now, these new creatives do, A, be able to live across so many different endpoints from six seconds to 30 seconds or even a 60 if, you, you know, if you're going to go really long form um, and how those ideas have to really be able to grow back and forth. Well, you know, you kind of touched on it in, in the previous episode and I just saw somebody post this morning on LinkedIn just talking about how no amount of multimedia optimization will save you from boring, bad creative. A hundred percent. And unfortunately there's a lot of boring, bad creative. And I say that as a consumer, not as a creative, I will give them, you know, there's some, there is some good stuff out there, but a lot of it looks the same. A lot of it's watered down because you're going after such a broad audience. Yeah. I think you, there's uh, a friend of mine has a joke said, he said, I 100% guarantee this medial plan will deliver all of your sales goals, provided that the creative is good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so there's always a there's always an out for, for the media planner, and it's always the creative. But all, again, all things being equal, even if you sell, even if you have like C-level creative, I think you can still find a media strategy that works of getting in front of the right people with the right frequency level to, to help break through. I agree. I, I think from a media perspective, you can still do it. You can still figure out the ways, as we talked about, programmatic as like a baseline. And then from there, being able to add more art, more science to really scale up to what you do to hone in and have bigger, better, more impactful, whether they're the units or more impactful, you know, creative, creatively speaking, things that you do, I think it's still viable. Yeah. So now what we're saying is that you can't judge a media property by the water cooler measurement anymore. You can't just say, oh, everybody's talking about the show, so we have to be on it. Now you really need to use the science in order to determine whether or not you've made an impact with your media buy. Correct. I mean, people still talk about the big shows when they come out. Unfortunately, not all the platforms take commercials to put in them. So to your point, you still have those big driven shows that people watch, talk about and share, but you can't always reach people through them. So now to your point, it comes down to that, the science part of how am I reaching them? Where am I reaching them? And how all do those components work together? And I mentioned it at the beginning, but you also have the scope of work aspect. I remember I had this discussion with a, with a client and they were saying, how come my scope keeps increasing every year? It's like you keep buying more stuff across different media types, and that's different vertical experts that are needed to manage those buys. If you just put all of your money in one media type, going back to our 
do one job well before moving on to another. If you just did one, if you just did network TV, you could cut your fee by half, but you wouldn't be reaching the same amount of people because those ratings have eroded over the decades. And now you need to buy these other things in order to uh, manage that. Plus it has additional impact from a scope standpoint is you need more assets. You can't just do a 30 or a 15 cut down or whatever you need a five, you need a, a seven, you need some static images, some display. It's a bunch of different things that are impacting the agency infrastructure and also the client's ability to act nimbly and effectively across this new multimedia landscape. Yeah. It's changing, but it's, I think it's always for the good. I think that, you know, things change, things evolve smarter. We, we learn how to do better with them from media planning. We learn how to do better from a creative standpoint. Agencies learn how to change their models. Clients usually are a little bit slower because to your point, they're looking at how much am I spending? What am I getting? What goes into it? How many hours of the people? But to do the job the right way, it's just you have to be able to see that the model is changing and you have to go with the model as it changes. I'm going to bring up music as a category that has had some significant changes. When everything moved from kind of physical media to digital, if you remember Napster and all that stuff, but then when Apple and other companies found a way to monetize it and legalize it, physical media went out of business. Record stores disappeared, but it was because the consumer wanted that consumers moved to digital. They wholeheartedly said, yes, this is a better and easier way to consume a thing that I already like. And I think that that's what's happening in TV or video. They are finding the content that they want. They want easy access to it, and they don't want to have to pay for a bundled price to get just the two or three different things that they want to watch. To go down the music rabbit hole a little bit, there's no more of that discovery of, oh my God, I love this song. It's on the radio. It's such a delight when it comes on because again, radio, you never knew what was going to come on. It was Russian roulette with music, but now you can find it anywhere you want it. Anytime you want it. I just wonder, does it take away some of the specialness, some of the, cause it's, it's, it's now it's just a commodity. Oh, I pay a monthly fee and I get it. I get, I binge on, I can get as much as I want when I want. And I just pay a fee and then, you know, I, I turn it off when I'm done and I turn it on when I want it back again. And I don't know, I just kind of wonder if it's lost a little of its sparkle. I think it has, but also I think you get the specialness, the discovery specialness in a different way. So somebody say, hey, check this song out. Or one of your friends is listening to this artist and you end up discovering it that way. I think they're discovering stuff a different way than you and I did. I remember I the only way I was able to hear a song from a specific artist was to literally buy the album because even the radio didn't have they weren't playing everything. There wasn't the only way to, to your point about getting access to every song, you'd actually have to buy the yep. physical album, cassette, CD, etc., whatever it is. But the point is that now you have access to anything. And I do pay a monthly fee to get access to everything. And I love it because now I can just call up whatever I want and play it and not have to worry about paying 10 or $15 for a whole album when I just want to sample one song. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, not to go down this rabbit hole either, but how many times when you bought the album, there was only one song on the album or maybe two, yeah. right? And you're yeah. like, eh, you know, you know, um, I mean, Bon I Jovi know. made a whole career of that. <laughs> 
And by the way, I know I know what I know what group you're talking about about getting no airplay until I think it was their uh, maybe their fifth album, if I'm correct. If I could do the math in my head correctly, I think that's the one that finally got them mainstream play. Who who is that? Metallica. Oh no, it was the uh, I I think it, I mean it depends what you call mainstream. I again I I, I would probably say uh, Master of Puppets. But yeah, you're probably right. And Justice for All was the fifth one, and that one got the more airplay. Well, that one had one, but yep. I was actually thinking of the Black Album. Yeah, that was after. That and was that one six. got pure, you know, mainstream play. But before, one, Master of Puppets, I think those were only played on, like, going way deep here, KNAC 105.5, the pure hard rock radio station here in L.A. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I do think there is some analogy going back from, from the music back to the video because you do have the same type of user experience where you can select what you want when you want it. So I think that that is still something that is people want content. I mean, I think podcasting is, is another aspect that is people can listen to that in their car. It's now the technology is just as easy to listen to that as you, as you listen to, to music and it's not, it's not killing radio. Radio is still a viable medium and, you know, just terrestrial radio is still a, a thing that people listen to digital media, digital music or podcasting or whatever has not killed that medium. And so I don't think video is going away. I don't think broadcast is going away. It's probably going to evolve into a different shape or form. But I think, again, consumers, just like with music, just like with print, they're going to drive how the industry responds from an advertising standpoint. The industry, I, I wonder the most about, which really doesn't have advertising, I mean, it has product placement, but is theaters, is the theatrical business. I'm not worrying about the strikes. I'm not taking that into account. I'm just saying, do people still, because attendance has been going down and down and down for years, right? Yes, we can all say Tom Cruise brought people back in last year with Top Gun Maverick. And, you know, so did Avatar 2. They did huge. Um, but I just wonder about the overall theatrical business of people going to theaters, turning from what had been, hey, let's go on a Friday night to see what's playing, turning into they must be big events. And so now you're going from event to event to event. And if it's not a big tentpole type film, it just getting some, I guess, going through a digital channel to your home, um, either through one of the platforms or through a pay-per-view model. Yeah, I mean, I thought the pandemic was had killed the movie industry. I thought there was no chance it was coming back. Once they started releasing first-run movies, I was like, who wants to go and spend $20 for a bucket of popcorn to watch a mediocre film when you can watch the same film for $5 sitting on your couch eating a 20 cent bag of popcorn. And I thought, and plus the pandemic, nobody wanted to go sit in a movie theater to potentially catch COVID. So I, I, I'm buying that back now because now the theater is still an experience. People have gone back. Barbie, I think is another great example of another huge blockbuster. Obviously, what Taylor Swift has done releasing bypassing the studios and releasing this massive, massive theater experience. So I think theaters are are not going away. They're here to stay. It is a special experience. You do want to go with a group of people, even people you don't know and, and kind of watch these films on a massive screen. So 
that is still a, a again, radio's not going away. Yeah. Print's not going away. Movie theaters are not going away. These are all additive. And every time a new media type comes out, it's additive, which, you know, circles back to the whole fragmentation argument. Yeah, which is why you need to have a proper media mix to find, you know, find your audience, know where they're at, what their passions are, and be able to link them together. We're kind of running long. Anything uh, else? Do you want to wrap up this this episode? No, I think it's been a great discussion. I think, you know, people talk about medium fragmentation as you started with. Is it a negative? And I think we both come away saying, no, it's not. It's a positive because as a consumer, we love it. It allows us to do what we want to do, how we want to do it. And it just makes our jobs, I don't want to say tougher, but different as media buyers and planners. We just have to be smarter. We just have to look at things with a different critical eye and be able to link these different train cars together to create the optimum reach. Well said. Thanks, Chris. Thank you.